you're here. Thank you for being here. And thank you to those of you who are also watching online. Now's the time where we hear from God's Word. And we need to hear from it because despite living in what many people say is a more enlightened, a, a more secular age, if we have the eyes to look, we can see that people all around us are obsessed with what I call the supernatural. People are obsessed about the supernatural. I'm talking about things that are beyond us, unexplainable, but I'm not talking about God. I'm talking about other things, supernatural. Just this week, I saw that if you would like to, I live very close to Lingolstown. You can take a ghost tour in Lingolstown. I think probably more of what happens in Gettysburg has to do with ghost tours than the actual Civil War. These things are around. I was also looking this week, I was in the app Snapchat, and there's things you can watch, and one of them were stories about superhuman strength. There were videos of people using great feats of strength to save someone. People are obsessed with watching things like that. I know that the news cycle goes really fast, but do you remember back in June when everybody was talking about how the Air Force, the Pentagon, was going to declassify files related to unidentified flying objects, and there were videos of Air Force things that, that they saw, these little things, they don't know what they are. People are obsessed with the supernatural. Not too long ago, I went to a bookstore, and I noticed in there that there is no longer just a romance section, but there's a whole separate section, a vampire romance section now in the bookstore. There is literally a TV show that ran for 15 years just called Supernatural. People are obsessed with the supernatural. And I believe it's because people are looking for something, something else out there to give extra meaning to their life. And it's easy to point fingers, maybe criticize others, but those of us who profess to follow Christ, we have our own version of not God, supernatural things that we can be obsessed about as well. If you went to a Christian bookstore, you'd find many books and movies about angels and the wonderful things angels do. You'd find whole sections about people who took trips to heaven and can tell you all about what they saw there. Sometimes we share amongst each other stories of miraculous things that happened to friends or relatives or people that we know. But the truth for both believers and non-believers is that there is something even better than these supernatural stories. There is someone better, and that is Jesus Christ. And so this week we're going to learn why he is better than these other supernatural that's the focus of our text this morning, so if you're not already there, please turn in the book of Hebrews to chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1. We read verse 3 last time, but I'm using it because it, the sentence flows into verse 4. So we'll be reading verse 3 to the end of the chapter, and I'd ask that once you are there, you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then you can follow along in the Bible, or on the phone, or on the screen behind me as I read Hebrews 1, starting in verse 3. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus, and he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 10 adds, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Verse 13 says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning you would keep us from any type of supernatural or other distraction. May you lead us to be focused on you and to see you clearly. Keep us from distractions and help us to seek you, Jesus, to know you more. May you increase, may we decrease. May we know you more and rely on you more. It's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. As a bit of a reminder, we're in the book of Hebrews, which is a letter by an unknown author. It's really more of a sermon that he's delivering to some Jewish background believers. They used to be Jews, but now they were followers of Jesus. And the message of this author to them is Jesus is better. He is better. So they shouldn't go back to Judaism, their old way of life. They should stick with Jesus because he is better. I talked a bit last week how We're using this comparison because, yes, while Jesus is the best, he is Lord of all to worship, when we say better, it helps us to put two things in perspective and see that we should value Jesus more than other things we're tempted to value. For example, if we were talking about pie, I might say pumpkin pie is the best. And you say, okay. But if I say pumpkin pie is better than apple pie, it's better than cherry pie, some of you may disagree with that. And that's the point, is that when we talk about better, we want Jesus to be the center of our emotions. Here in chapter 1, the author is focusing on the person of Christ. He's telling them how amazing the person of Jesus is before he turns to his work, what Jesus has done. And in this, his main focus is to show them how much better Jesus is than angels. He starts by telling us that Jesus has a better name than angels. If you got the handout we were passing out later, Jesus has a better name than angels a better name. We saw this in verses 3 through 5, particularly verse 4, which tells us about after Jesus sat down, he's become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse 5 adds, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me 
a son. Now, as we go through these verses, people may divide them differently, but the point is still the same. Jesus has a better name, a better status. He has a better title, a better rank. He has a better reputation than any angel. Now, sitting here in the 21st century, we may be a little confused at this. He was talking about who Jesus is, and now he's talking about angels. Why does he feel the need to do this? Well, to the people he was writing to, they were very tempted to focus on Jesus. At this time, there was a lot of Jewish literature about what angels were like, what angels were doing, a lot of speculation. They weren't using God's word. They were making up things, wondering things. Angels might do this. No, maybe they do this. There were some Jews who were even expecting God to save his people, not by a Messiah and a human savior, but by angels would come and save them. It was the big distraction of the day. It was the thing everyone was talking about. And it seems it was creeping into this church that this author is writing to. People were starting to talk a lot about angels, just the same way that today we can focus on things other than Jesus, spend a lot of time on them. Now, although they were allowing this distraction to come in, there's some reason why they were doing this. The Bible does talk about angels. It talks about them as created beings. They're messengers from God. They would appear in human form. They would minister and serve before God. They would guide and protect humans. But especially important to them, to, to Jews, to Hebrews, was angels were said to be the ones who revealed the Old Testament law. The law, the instructions God gave his people. We have it in the very first five books in our Bible. The angels were the ones who were said to deliver it, who gave God's truth to his people. And it seems that these early believers maybe were tempted to value angels more than Jesus. Jesus, he, he was a man. He was a human. He, he lived here. He was born and lived. Angels, they're cool. They come down from heaven and they give us God's word. And we may chuckle that that was a serious concern for this audience. They were talking a lot about angels and not a lot about Jesus. And so the point this author is making is that Jesus' name, his essence, is Son. He is the Son of God. And that is a superior, far greater name than any angel has. The Apostle Paul would talk about how much better this name is in the book of Ephesians. He talks about that God worked in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places. By doing that, God raised him far above all rule, all authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that has been named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Unlike angels, Jesus has an intimate relationship with God. He has a better inheritance, something better coming for him. His rank and reward is higher. We may be more familiar with this quote from Paul from Philippians chapter 2. He talks about Jesus saying, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed, given him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus one day, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The author of our book is trying to drive this point home to these Hebrews and tell them that you need to understand who Jesus is. I know you think angels are cool, but Jesus is so much better than them. 
If you know Him, then you will not be tempted to leave the faith. That's why who Jesus is, that He is God, it's just as important for us to understand that as it is to know what He did, that He died on the cross for us. If we don't know that Jesus is God, then He's just some person who who died 2,000 years ago. But if we understand that He is God in human flesh, and then we realize He died for us, that is an incredible truth. It is the truth that saves us. He is God, and He knows us. This is the main point the author is trying to get across. And to do that, he'll spend the rest of chapter 1 stringing together a bunch of Old Testament Scripture passages from the first half of the Bible, what would have been the Hebrew Bible to these people. And he's using these verses to support his idea, his claim that Jesus is better than angels. In these verses, he's actually going to quote from every part of the Old Testament. Now, in our Old Testament, we have it organized a little bit differently than the ancient Hebrews did. When they organized it, they broke it into three sections. Their first section was the law, what's our Bible's the first five books. And so this author, he'll quote from that. He'll quote from the book of Deuteronomy. The next major chunk, what we often call history and things like that, they called the prophets. They said because prophets were working and they were sharing about God. And so in this chapter 1, he'll quote from 2 Samuel, which came from the prophets. And then the last section of their Bible, they called the writings. These things weren't history, they weren't prophecy. A lot of it was poetry, describing who God is and how great he was. And the author spends a lot of time quoting from the Psalms here in chapter 1. So he quotes from the law, he quotes from the prophets, and he quotes from the writings. Really, he's just doing what any good preacher should do. What I try to do in sermons is I try to back up what I'm saying from Scripture. We should really be doubtful if somebody's trying to teach something in a church and they're not using Scripture to defend it. That's exactly what he's doing. Jesus did the exact same thing. He spoke to two of his disciples after he had been raised from the dead. And he began with Moses and all the prophets, and he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So that's what this author is doing. He's explaining the things about Jesus in this passage. He starts in verse 5 with a kind of rhetorical question. We're not supposed to actually answer it because the answer is obvious. To which of the angels did God say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Well, none of them. God never said that to an angel. To which of the angels did God say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? Again, none of the angels heard that from God. These are quotes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel 7, 14. These verses, when we find them in the Old Testament, they were addressed to King David, telling him that one of his descendants would be declared God's son. And in some way, his own actual flesh and blood son, Solomon, fulfilled that a little, but the full fulfillment was in Christ. Jesus was descended from King David many generations later, and he is truly God's son. It says he was begotten. It says, you are my son today. I have begotten you, became your father. That's a poetic expression. It doesn't mean that actually became his father in that made him or that Jesus came into existence at that point. It's speaking to the special relationship between God and Jesus. Look what even he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Well, Jesus existed before that. He was just especially declared to be God's son 
at that moment. It verified his identity. When Jesus was baptized, something very similar happened. He went to be baptized by John the Baptist, and after he came out of the water, a voice came from heaven, Mark says. And this voice said, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It was kind of like a coming-of-age ceremony. And we're talking about Hebrews and, and Jews, so it was kind of like a bar mitzvah. The son is formally given the family name. And the point in Hebrews is that angels could be God's messenger, but God never said they are his son. So Jesus' name is better. The second thing he says is Jesus is also better because Jesus is worshipped by angels. He is worshipped by angels. That's how we know that he's better. Verse 6 tells us, again, when he, when God brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus worshiped. And this is a very important point because in the Old Testament, when people see angels, they want to worship them. People see an angel, it's so incredible, they want to praise them. Even those who know Jesus have this temptation. The Apostle John was one of Jesus' closest friends, but when he was given a, a vision, a revelation of what would happen at the end, an angel spoke to him, and we read that I, John, fell down at his feet to worship him. And the angel had to say to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. That's what the angel had to say. But here, in Hebrews, we read the angels are worshiping someone. They are worshiping God. To prove this, the author is citing here from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, or maybe from Psalm 97 in the Greek version. And he's saying that God's firstborn is to be worshipped. Kind of like be God and this firstborn is a title. It's saying he is preeminent. Jesus is the most important. He is the right of inheritance. It doesn't mean that Jesus was created or that he did not exist, but he is the most important. God would say this to David, actually, at one point. In Psalm 89, it says, I will make him, King David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. Well, David was the youngest in his family, but God's saying, I'm making him into an important position. So here, when it says the firstborn, it's talking about Jesus as God's most important representative. The point is that the angels worship God, and if they worship the Son, then he must be God as well. Scholar Michael Kruger put it this way, people may find angels mesmerizing, but angels themselves are mesmerized by Jesus. What does that mean for us? That means if angels who these incredible special beings, if they're worshiping Jesus, then we should worship him too. We should want our lives to reflect his glory, to give him praise, to show others his goodness. Another reason we should worship him, the author tells us, is because Jesus rules over angels. He's not only worshiped by them, but he is their ruler. He is in charge of them. We see this in verses 7 through 9. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
And therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This quote is from Psalm 104 in verse 7. It's telling us that angels, they're powerful. They come with winds and fire. They have power from God's presence. They are powerful spirits. But ultimately, they're only servants of God. He controls them the same way he controls the wind and the fire. And on the other hand, in verses 8 and 9, he's quoting from Psalm 45, saying, Jesus is the descendant of David. He is the King, the Messiah, the Savior. He is the Anointed One. That's what it's talking about with that oil of gladness. God has poured oil on his head, not necessarily literally, but to represent he is the King. He is the one who is supposed to rule. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah talks about this as well. This is Jesus speaking. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus is the one who has been anointed by God. And that makes him now oil of gladness beyond his companions. He is the king above every king. Any other peers he has around them do not compare because only his kingdom is eternal. It's based on true righteousness and justice. He will oppose, he will defeat every form of wickedness, lawlessness, and evil. Scholar Al Mohler said, angels may surround the throne of God, but the Son sits on the throne. Angels may be sent, but Christ is the anointed one. Talk about one kind of last big difference between the two is that Jesus created angels. Jesus created angels. He not only rules over them, he's not only worshiped by them, but he's the one who actually made them. Verses 10 through 13 were the ones who talked about this to say, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. To which of the angels, as he said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verses 10 and 12, that's from Psalm 102. It's a psalm about God, and the author is saying it's actually also about his son. And this creator is better than what he has created. If you remember, we talked about this last week. Jesus was involved in creation. He was helping, working with God to make everything we see, to build these foundations of creation. It's not that the world is literally on a foundation, a a pillar, but it's saying Jesus is the eternal creator. And so he's then the one who will bring about the end of all things. This psalm is telling us a truth we know. The things we see around us will not last forever. Creation decays. It wears out like old clothing. But this creator, this king, this son does last forever. He does not change. The author of Hebrews will say at the very end of his book, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Think about this. We know this to be true. It's talking about clothes. Usually, your clothes wear out before you do, usually. We sometimes have maybe an article or two of clothing that maybe is passed down by generations or 
maybe something we wore when we were really little that somebody saved for us, but most of the time, your clothes wear out pretty quickly. I know for myself, it seems like I buy a pack of socks, and the next thing I know, half of them have holes in them. They wear out very quickly. And so the point this author is saying is everything we see around us, like those clothes, is wearing out. It's decaying. It's falling apart. But Jesus won't. He will remain in power. He will have authority over his creation. That's what verse 13 says. This is a quote from Psalm 110, a quote that's often referenced by Jesus and others. I'm not going to read Mark 12, but it's Jesus making the point using this same psalm that, that he himself has a deity, a rule that, that King David didn't have. He has been exalted to a place of favor, honor, and power. The author of Hebrews is going to come back to this truth as well in chapter 10. He'll say, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and now he is waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is a warrior king, and his enemies lie humbled and defeated at his feet. He will rule over them, defeat his enemies. And so the author, he's going through all this to tell the Hebrews, you need to come back to this king because he is better than angels. He is the one who is going to win. And even though it doesn't look like it right now, he will be the victor. No matter what we see or hear in the world around us, we can trust that Jesus is better. And that's his conclusion. The very last verse of the chapter is that his conclusion is Jesus is better than angels. He doesn't say it in those words. Instead, he talks about angels. And he says, are not they, are not angels ministering spirits? They're sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. Jesus is better than angels because they're ministers, they're servants, but Jesus is God. He's the one with greater authority. Angels only exist to obey him. Psalm 103 says they're the mighty ones who do his word, who obey the voice of his word. And remember how, how powerful this is. When you go to a store and you buy something that looks like an angel, it's often cute and, and, and cuddly. That, that, that's not how scripture describes angels. It describes angels as powerful beings. In the Bible, when people see angels, they either want to worship them or they're afraid of them. You may be familiar with this. This is a, a common verse we hear around Christmas time. It's talking about the shepherds. And it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And they didn't say, oh, how cute. No, the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. Those are angels, these powerful beings, creations of God. But they're not divine like God is and like his son is. They're God's messengers. They bring about his judgment. They serve God. And... The author of Hebrews tells us they also serve God's people. They serve those who will inherit salvation. Believers. That's if, you, if you profess to know Jesus, that's, that's you, that's me. Angels exist to help serve and help and care for us. They provide a service. They help us to know God, to grow closer to him. They help us on our journey to our heavenly inheritance. Scripture isn't very clear on exactly what that looks like, so we might not know exactly, but we can be confident it happens. We can trust God. He sends his servants to help us. 
But don't miss the point the author's making. The point the author's making is these are people who come, creations, who come to help us. Jesus does far more for us than they do. He is better because he is the one who saved us. The one scholar I quoted earlier, Michael Kruger, he had an example. He was comparing angels to the JV team. Yeah, they do great things, but they are not the ones who are really in the game here to save us. They're all inspiring, yes, but Jesus is better. They serve. He is the one who reigns. We should seek him, not them. That's the lesson I want us to take home, and I want to spend some time here at the end kind of comparing, because that's what we're doing in the series. We're comparing Jesus is better. So let's talk through some other kind of supernatural things that may distract us. And we'll arrive at this application that we should not get distracted, really by anything, but this week we're talking about supernatural things. We should not get distracted. We should seek Jesus. Don't get distracted. Seek Jesus. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about the other side of supernatural, Satan and his demons, but if we're a follower of Christ, you realize Satan and his demons, they're not trying to possess you, to, to take you over in some Hollywood-like way, but they are trying to distract you from following Jesus. They'll even use good things to keep us from Jesus, the one who is always better, the one who is always good. He's given us some good news, a gospel. His good news is that our sins separated us from God, but he came. He lived for us. He died for us. He was raised to new life so he could give us life. That if we reject, turn away from our sin, if we believe and trust in him, then we can know God. Not something we work for or achieve by ourselves, but by trusting him. That's the gospel, the good news. And that's the message that Satan tries to distract us from. The Apostle Paul would write this. He even talks about angels. He says, If we or an angel from heaven should come to you and preach a gospel that's contrary or different from the one that I preached to you, that Jesus saves, then let him be accursed. As I've said before and I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that one you received, let him be accursed. So let's talk about some of these distractions and about how Jesus is better than that. We'll start with angels, because that's what our author is talking about here. Angels serve God's purposes. They shouldn't be to us a source of fascination or, or worship. A real angel will want to point our focus toward God. The angel we read about when Jesus came, they quickly said, no, Jesus is born, that's why we're here. The angel John was talking to said, don't worship me, worship God. A real angel would point us toward God and not draw our attention to itself. This is why we want to be careful with ideas like each person has an individual guardian angel. That might be a real nice thing to believe. It's not explicitly taught in Scripture. So we really shouldn't emphasize that. And personally, I think the idea of that kind of pushes Jesus away. It's saying, I have this angel who's here to help me and is able to help me through my problems. Well, that's what Jesus is for. That's what Jesus does for us. You don't need a guardian angel. You can know Jesus. He is the rescuer, the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is the one you should rely on. 
if we move from angels, we might consider other supernatural things. Maybe stories we read about supernatural or strange mythical creatures. We can even slip into this in a, a Christian way. I know some people who claim to be Christians, but they're obsessed talking about giants in the Old Testament and looking at the different types of angels and believe what they're doing in the world around us. I find by observation that those who spend a lot of time talking about those things, giants and angels in the Bible, I think they spend less time thinking about Jesus and about how his character should change their character. And I think the more time they spend thinking about angels is the less time they spend loving others. Other supernatural creatures, I I referenced earlier about vampire romance novels, something like that. And look, let me be clear, I'm I'm not telling you to not read something that that you like. If if you enjoy reading things like that and it doesn't lead you into sin, then then knock yourself out. But we, we should, really with anything we're reading, ask ourselves the question, why are we doing this? And I think sometimes those kind of stories, or really any romance story, the reason we read it is because we think we're missing something in our life. We have a longing for something. I assume many of those who are really, really obsessed with stories like that, I'm not saying just enjoy, but like really obsessed with it, I, I think they have a longing for wonder. They have a longing for a supernatural committed romance. They're longing for someone to love them in a perfect way, in an eternal, never-failing way, to be completely committed to them. But that can only be found in Jesus Christ the only supernatural person who's going to fly into your life, love you the way that God intended, bring wonder and joy into your life, is not a vampire. It's Jesus Christ. Now we may talk about that, but, but let, me, let me turn it a little closer to home and some things that sometimes Christians, we can do to, that distract us from who God is. Spend a moment talking about these stories about people going to heaven. Now, if you've read a story like that, it benefited you, it helped you love God more than, than good for you, but I think we should be really extremely skeptical of stories like this. I don't know for sure, only God knows. I would say most, and I really believe in my heart, I think all of those kind of stories are fake. And the reason I think that is because in every single one I've spent the time to look at, please don't send more, to me, but in the ones that I've spent time <laughs> looking at, the people involved in it, they either admit that they faked it, or what they say contradicts what the Bible says about heaven. And if you want proof of that, hear what the Apostle Paul had to say about his trip to heaven. Because he, he was taken to heaven. He saw what was there. This is what he says about it. He talks in the third person about it, just because he wants to push it away from himself. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, the highest heaven. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know this man was caught up into paradise. He saw heaven. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, he doesn't know. God knows. And what happened? He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. The end. (laughs) If I was a book publisher, I would say, Paul, this is a terrible story. We're not going to get on the New York Times bestseller list with a story like that. But that's the point. That's how the Bible describes heaven. It is this place of worshipful awe. 
people see and they don't even have the words to describe. It's not a place of cute, warm, fuzzy stories. That's, that's not the way heaven is described in Scripture. Now, let me be clear. I'm, I'm not trying to tear down something you enjoy. That, that's really not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to tell you that knowing Jesus is a better story than the account of somebody else seeing heaven. You don't need a story of someone else going to heaven. You don't need it. You can know Jesus better today. He wants to know you. He wants to have a close relationship with you. You read his word. You spend time in prayer with him. You will know him far better than reading about someone else's true or not true account of seeing heaven. You can know him. The last kind of distraction I want to talk about is we can get distracted from God by talking about stories of miracles, unexplained events that happen around us. Sometimes Christians are very tempted to share stories like this. We talk about this sick friend. This person was sick and now they are healed. But this other person I know, they survived a fire. They survived a car crash. Or the other side of that, this person was seconds away from a car crash and something happened. Wow, isn't that incredible? There are a lot of these things going around a couple weeks ago because we passed the 20th anniversary of September 11th. And there's lots of stories like that. Well, I was going to be in New York, but something changed in my schedule. Or this person, they were on their way to the towers, and then they got caught in traffic, and so they weren't there when it happened. And there's nothing wrong with being encouraged by stories like that. But we should be very cautious when sharing them. I, I have two questions to think about before sharing a story of something we think is a miracle. One is, would this story encourage a hurting person? Because stories like that can be very offensive and hurtful to someone who's experienced suffering in their life. For every person God spared from going into towers, there were those inside who did not have the same faith. Did God love them and their families less? So it can be very hurtful to somebody who's experienced great suffering in their life. And we shouldn't limit God. He can bless someone through suffering just as well as he can bless someone when he blesses and works in an amazing way. And the second question we should ask if we're sharing a story like that is, where is my focus in sharing this? Because we're tempted to focus on the miracle, the act itself, rather than the God behind it, the Savior who makes it possible. We learn more about God through his word, through spending time with Jesus, knowing his person, what he has done. We learn more about God that way than by sharing a story of some miracle. Miracles are not proof of God. They can show who he is. I'm not saying they don't happen. They can show us God has done this amazing thing. Absolutely. But we have his word. And even if a miracle happens, we are told in scripture, I was reading this today in my Sunday school class in Mark 13, that false Christ, false prophets will arise. They will perform signs and wonders to lead astray non-believers. No, to lead astray, if possible, the elect, those who know God. We're told that saying we'll use signs and wonders to try to draw us away from focusing on Christ. So our confidence shouldn't be in this amazing story we know that happened to this friend or to someone else, but in God. And as I was thinking about this, there was something I, I realized. Do you know that when we get to heaven, you will not see unexplained events anymore? Because in heaven, you'll see God. You'll see what God is doing. You'll know, oh, here's God. He's doing this. That, that, that's, that's amazing. You won't see something and be like, I wonder if God was behind that. Well, no, you're there. You'll see what God is doing. 
and his word. Again, uh, please hear me. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with telling about something amazing that happened to someone. I'm not saying that at all. We can be greatly encouraged by those stories. There's nothing wrong with being amazed of, wow, God did this in someone's life. What I'm saying is we shouldn't let that, just like these Hebrews, let angels be more important. We shouldn't let that be more important than talking about Jesus, who he is, and what he has done. Those are great stories, but we'll spend eternity with Jesus, which is spend time getting to know him as a person, not just being amazed by what he has done. Or else, perhaps these words from the Gospel of John would describe us. Though he had done many signs before them, he still they still did not believe in him. They saw these miracles and thought they were great, but what they needed was faith in Christ. He should be the focus of our lives. Jesus should be the center of our heart. To borrow words from Apostle Paul, Jews, Hebrews, they demand signs. They like to see these miracles. Greeks, they seek wisdom and knowledge, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolish to the Gentiles, but that is our message and truth. Christ died so that we would know God. Jesus is better than anything else supernatural because he is God. He died to save us and rose from the grave so we could have new life. Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with this person who died to save you? If you don't, I pray that you will talk to me about how you can know Jesus and not be wrapped up in these other distractions. If you do know him, then let's commit to worship him. He is the one who died to save us. He is the one who is worthy of our praise and worship.